Welcome to the KPMG Tax Now podcast. In this podcast, we explore some of the more complex matters across tax, economics, regulation, and compliance. Each month, we meet with KPMG's foremost experts and other special guests to unpack key issues faced by taxpayers around the globe. Hello, my name is Alan Needham and I'm a Principal Director in KPMG's Accelerating Business Growth Group. And I'll be your host for today's podcast focused on how business can benefit from collaboration. In this podcast, we'll discuss two key matters. One, how Australian businesses have a poor track record in collaborating with each other and with research organisations. And two, how and why this performance should and can be improved. We've all heard about the apparent benefits of successful collaboration. Indeed, some of our most successful inventions are the result of collaboration between businesses and researchers from publicly funded research organisations such as universities or the CSIRO. Research has shown that businesses that work with researchers on innovation are more likely to improve productivity than businesses that don't. Together, businesses and researchers can solve problems and bring new goods and services to the market. Therefore, it's been proven that seeking to add capability or capacity to your own business through well-aligned collaborations can significantly accelerate your growth. However, we've also probably heard that collaboration can often be a difficult beast to tame. Finding the right partner, agreeing on contributions and how to share the benefits are often serious challenges that, in many cases, will deter businesses from even trying. Once bitten, twice shy is often sadly the case. With me today is Michael Egan, an Associate Director in KPMG's Accelerating Business Growth Practice. Michael has spent his career to date working in industry for large and small organisations here and overseas, and for publicly funded organisations, including the CSIRO and the University of Melbourne. It's fair to say that Michael has been involved in or helped facilitate a large number of collaborations, all no doubt with varying degrees of success and with their own particular challenges. Let's hear what clues Michael can give us for making collaboration work. What does collaboration mean to you? It's interesting. I've been thinking about this collaboration and um, I think sometimes people use it in the wrong way. And what I mean by that is people often talk on Instagram about the the desire to do a collaboration. But in actual fact, what they mean is, can you give me something? And to be honest, that's really not a collaboration. Um, A big part of collaboration is a balanced approach to sharing the costs or the risks of a particular activity, and hopefully, um, if the collaboration goes well, uh, to share the positive outcomes or the successes of actually working together. So what are the characteristics of a successful collaboration for business? Look, I think think one of the challenges for any business perspective, and of course my, my interest is collaboration between companies with each other and companies and research organisations specifically where companies are trying to find uh, an opportunity to access expertise that doesn't exist in their own organisation. And so for for that type of collaboration, a big challenge is, I'm going to say, essentially building the trust and understanding what your collaboration partner is actually going to, going to bring. Um, because if you, if you don't manage that well, you end up with something that I call unvoiced expectations. And what what I mean by that is where people don't really say what it is they're involved in the collaboration for, where they're not really clear about what outcome that they really care about, 
because everyone goes into a collaboration with a different set of their own priorities or their own particular desires or their own real motivations. And so if they don't really voice those expectations, you can tend to find that all of the decisions along the way are, I'm going to say politely, suboptimal and things don't work out for the best for all of, all of the participants. Okay. And I, I mentioned in the introduction that uh, Australian businesses in particular seem to have a poor track record in terms of collaboration. Uh, I think we rank you know, very low on the OECD sort of um, league table. I mean, why, why do you think it is that so many Australian businesses seem to struggle to collaborate with others? I think part of the challenge, I mean, to be honest, is geography to some degree. I mean, Australia is a very, very, very big place. Uh, but in actual fact, you tend to find that that around the main uh, cities that there is reasonably good collaboration at some levels. But what what is often a challenge is there's not the same mobility of people into and out of different organisations in the same way as there are in other countries principally. And the reason why that's actually quite significant is because if you, if you have someone in your organisation who understands the motivating factors of another company or in another organisation, you're actually better placed to understand how you can map out your plan to work together. I mean, you made a really good point, Alan, about the OECD data. And one of the, one of the challenges there is that they have to you know, have quite structured models so they can effectively compare one country to another country. And so the Oslo model is actually a really good way of, of trying to make that assessment. But actually, as is often the case, when you scrape the surface of these things, you can find that there actually good collaboration does exist and it can exist, but it takes quite a bit of effort. And, and, and does it seem, or would it be fair to say, that certain industry sectors perhaps have a greater prevalence for collaboration? Is it, it seems to be, you know, perhaps, say, the life science sector might be more um, uh, used to being or, or being required to collaborate, just given the nature of their uh, technology and yeah. their business models? Yeah, that's a really great point, Alan. Because one of the one of the challenges in that particular sector, or opportunities in some respects, is that there's quite a high level of regulation, and that regulation actually provides quite a lot of clarity and structure in terms of how they go around developing the products in that particular group. And so, for example, the the technologies that they actually need to the access. They have to work with research organisations because they want to be at the cutting edge of those particular technology develops, usually in terms of drug discovery. And you'll find that quite a number of the people uh, spend time on both. In fact, I'm going to say there's more than two sides, but in multiple different parts of the supply chain of those particular products. So they, they hire a large number of PhDs. They specifically target... Um, talent acquisition programs to make sure that they're providing universities with things that they think that they want to work on now, but their timescale is much, much longer. And they spend quite a significant amount of time, I'm going to say nurturing and developing those relationships. So at the Mm -hmm. point that they want to access expertise, they actually already know where to go. And they know, I'm going to use this word, they know who to trust and who they're happy to work with, particularly in projects as they're developing. And I, I think that's a really critical a critical point, Alan. Yeah, no, it makes a lot of sense. Now, um, I mentioned before that you've worked overseas, and I think the UK, Israel, and Japan, and, and probably elsewhere. So given your international experience, 
Have you observed anything unique to the Australian business environment that could explain our relative lack of collaboration? I don't don't actually think there's anything specifically unique. I mean, there are some, uh, if you think about some of the things that take the friction out of actual doing collaboration, you could point to the Lambert model, which is um, the Lambert toolkit rather, which is a model of different ways of managing IP and collaborative agreements from universities to universities and universities to companies. And that's actually quite beneficial from uh, the perspective of trying to remove those friction points by having a common understanding of how IP is managed. And in fact, even the reviews of that particular that particular toolkit are, I'm going to say, in the main, in the main, very positive. They're not necessarily for every project and every set of circumstances, but certainly as a starting point for the negotiation and providing what you might describe as a fair and reasonable approach to what can be quite complex situations. It's actually a, a, a really positive thing that has happened in the UK. Do you need to, do you think, and just reflecting on your international experience uh, and thinking of countries like Israel in particular, I mean, does, do, do you need a sense of um, urgency or some level of um, you know, pressure on a, on a business in some sense to encourage it to seek um, the opportunity to work with others? As a driver, um, having a crisis is a good motivating element to drive people to take on challenges that they perhaps haven't dealt with before. And quite often, quite often companies will uh, be motivated because the regulation has changed in the particular area that they're involved in and, and they can't continue to do what they've been doing for some time. And there's no question that that's going to be the case as we look further towards the future. Regulations will will actually drive changes in the way that we deliver things, changes in the way that we produce products, changes in the materials that we use, for example. And people will, companies will look for solutions about how they can maintain their delivery to their particular market. And it's unlikely that all of the skills are going to exist within their own organization. So that's just one element, some sort of regulatory change. Another, another change is that someone else has brought a product into the market that the person is, the company's trying to deliver to. And that's starting to occlude their product. And quite often at the moment, you'll see a lot of companies who are extending the capability of a core product by adding some software or some other wrappers wrappers around it in order to be more efficient or effective or more accessible for whoever their customer is. And the third case really is, is the case where companies actually have an innovation strategy. And that's actually really quite valuable for the company itself because it allows them actually to be um, not just opportunistic for when things come along, but to actually see where opportunities might be and that they can effectively pursue. And as I mentioned earlier, um, one of the things that really does benefit the company is to spend a bit of time to understand what capabilities exist and where they might access them. So in an Australian context, you know, you might be based in Melbourne, but the capability that you really need and the expertise that you really need might be in WA. So you need to put in a bit of time to to understand where that capability may come from firstly, but also to understand how you want to work together. So developing smaller projects that engage other participants is a really good way to, I'm going to say, build that trust line. So does a business need to specifically set itself the task of seeking collaborations or can it just rely on happenstance? 
I, I definitely uh, think happenstance is not a good a good approach. And the reason why happenstance is not great, and I, I think people often think that some things were serendipitous. And personally, when it comes to research and collaboration, I don't think there are serendipitous occasions. There, there are lots of opportunities and effort to know who is the right expert, who's got the capability, uh, the willingness and the resources to work on a particular project. And as a result of, I'm going to say, a, a lot of engagement effort, you can make good choices as opposed to waiting until you have some form of crisis and having a limited amount of time to make a choice when in actual fact you haven't spent the time to develop an understanding an understanding that um, potentially will support a better project outcome. So let, let's deal with the, uh, the elephant in the room, which I touched on earlier. So businesses frequently quote frustrations with their research dealings with universities and other research organisations. In your experience, are the comments around, for example, IP, timeliness, commerciality, are they fair? There's a number of different challenges. So the IP is obviously a significant one. And and as the case with any large organisation, and universities principally are large organisations, you've got to figure out how to navigate your way through. You've got to work with the varying attitudes towards how IP potentially could be managed. You've got to manage through the people who are in business development, fundamentally business development roles in order to support the contract formation. And you want to be able to do that effectively where in some cases, smaller companies or even larger companies, there's elements of friction in both of them. And it takes a bit of skill and knowledge and often experience to know how to navigate your way through all of those things. I think one of the, the things to look out for is there are, I'm going to call them different personas that you might come across. So you might come across people who are, you know, highly technical and, and want to get right into the weeds of a particular technical issue. They, they, they spend time trying to understand too much too early uh, without actually understanding what the real business goal is, you know. Or you might have others that are, I, I often call them the chief business prevention officer. So that's the person who sort of spends their time trying to think through about all of the risks. Not, and, and there are always are risks, but perhaps they're using that as a mechanism in order to, you know, provide value but not actually enabling the activity to go forward. And that can be a challenge. And the other thing often you want to be aware of is you want to be aware of who is wasting your time. And the reason why you need to be aware of that is because obviously your time is actually valuable and you want to try and engage with people who can actually move your project forward. So you need to have a, an eye out for the child catcher, the person who in an organisation is quite content to spend time with you but in actual fact, isn't really motivated to get in the project to even start, never mind actually getting a good project outcome. So, so the federal government has recently announced its higher education research commercialisation IP framework in a bid to unify and simplify the terms of the ownership of IP arising from research collaborations to deal with you know, perhaps one of the challenges. So, so can you just expand on the intent here and, and do you think it will have a material impact? Um, I think it's still in the consultation stage, if I'm right. 
I think that's right, yes. Yeah, so I think certainly it will have a material a material impact and quite a lot of the detail quite a lot depends on the detail, exactly how it would be implemented and where the connections are between the the, the funding for what's potentially proposed and how it would be used. As I mentioned before, I think the connection to have a common language and a common understanding of IP is going to be really, really good, especially for those organisations that are smaller and perhaps this is their first time of actually trying to navigate IP with a university or navigate IP with CIRO, for example. Um, because, you know, having done a little bit of work, I, IP is not just securing the process of the patent you also need to think deeply about the strategy of what the ip will enable you to do and what it may be enable others to do or how you actually want to figure out how you monetize the knowledge that you're hoping to create um so i think overall there's a there's a balance i mean the the universities themselves also they have a vested interest in effectively managing their ip and have their own ip strategy and depending on the type of project and the level of investment they, they will want to have, I'm going to say flexible arrangements, but I think this is a really positive step to have a common language. All right, so let's bring this all together. So what are some of the key actions businesses can take to position themselves to best take advantage of potential collaboration opportunities? Uh, start now, Alan, probably best advice. Start now is always a good thing because, as I said, when you're trying to uh, make a decision of who the capabilities where the capabilities may come from rather and who could potentially provide them it's really worthwhile to actually have a strategy in place uh, and that strategy is, is beneficial twofold firstly obviously in relation to your r&d tax incentive having a clear strategy for what your innovation is going to be into the future allows you to actually have good project management to manage that and of course support your r&d tax claim it's one element Another element is having a good innovation strategy is really critical because it allows you to start to identify those people with the expertise that you may need to call into the future. And, and by doing that now and spending time to understand who they are, what their area of expertise is, understanding what their willingness to help may be, understanding what equipment and facilities they can access that perhaps you're not going to invest in, or even understanding what equipment and facilities they have right now that you potentially do want to invest in, uh, but you want to understand how it might work with whatever business you might be involved in. So I can't say enough that regardless of your business size and regardless of where your business strategy is overall, having a clear and unambiguous innovation strategy is definitely beneficial because it allows you to start doing that work to build trust and understand who you really want to work with from the outset. So I would encourage everyone to, to do that work now because you will substantially reap the benefits in time. That's sound advice indeed, Michael. So that's fantastic. That's all we have time for today. So my thanks to Michael for his time today. If you'd like to get in touch, please send us an email to kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au or you can find us on the KPMG website. Just look for Accelerating Business Growth. My name is Alan Needham and it's been my pleasure to host today's podcast. You can register for KPMG Tax Now to find out more, as well as receive regular updates across a range of topics. Thanks for listening. Thanks for listening to another episode of the KPMG Tax Now podcast. If you'd like to ask us a question, please send us an email at kpmgtaxnow at kpmg.com.au. 
Be sure to subscribe at kpmg.com forward slash au forward slash tax now or follow our LinkedIn page, KPMG Tax Now Insights. That's all for now. We look forward to sharing more insights with you soon.